Welcome to my first soccer game. Uh, my name is Karma, and this is the fourth episode of a podcast that, um, why don't I tell you a little bit about it? Basically, I, a few months ago, became obsessed with women's soccer, and I realized that I needed to track my process of learning about sports from scratch because I just really want to bridge the gap between my beloved theater world and this new separate sphere of women's sports, which actually there are two things, sports and theater, that are just built to make it hard for new people to get into it and understand you have to have so many years of knowledge of, uh, of information and of um, data that you've stored in your brain to understand these things. Um, they're both kind of like trivia magnets, like people who love just knowing so much trivia can get into these things. Anyway, I, I think that they're so similar and I think that it, it's uniquely hard to try to go from knowing nothing about one of them to understanding it and, uh, and operating within it. And that's the trajectory I'm taking right now with women's sports and I am taking you along with me. I can set the scene a little bit for you right now. I'm alone in my house. I'm extremely caffed up. I have a lot to talk about with you today. I want to talk about this one problem that I feel like sports, specifically women's sports, and oh no, I'm sorry, not men's sports at all, only women's sports, um, that women's sports and theater both face. And that problem is that nobody watches them. Um, famously. And, and then um, people not watching them is used as a reason to invest less in them and pay the people less who are involved in them and then make it harder for people to come see it, and, which then makes less people watch it. I think it's amazing how these two completely different things, a bunch of women on a field kicking around a ball and a bunch of also gay people on a stage kicking around an imaginary ball, um, both face the exact same problem. So I have a question that I'm trying to figure out, and that is the question of why. Why don't people want to watch the women's game? First, let's get into the facts of what's happening right now. Attendance is really low. The average attendance this season at a women's soccer game was 7,300 people at each game. That might kind of sound like a lot to you, but that is the span of, at the most, like in Portland, there's 20,000 fans on average in the stadium. But in New Jersey for Sky Blue, which is the closest team to New York City, they have 3,000 fans on average at the game. And compare that with an average like an average of 21,300 fans at a men's soccer game, which is, let me do some quick math, that's 14,000 more fans at these men's soccer games, which is like, uh, who, who, can anyone even name a men's soccer player? Whatever, <laughs> never mind. There has been momentum to try to build the popularity that came from the Women's World Cup and, and infuse that into more local soccer and our national league. And actually Budweiser released an ad campaign with the slogan won't stop watching which was kind of like a call for fans and sponsors to pledge that they won't forget about women's soccer just because the world cup is over and this momentum doesn't just exist in soccer it's other women's team sports are also trying to grow a few weeks ago i read this article in the new york times about women's basketball called the wnba is putting on some of the best pro basketball in america why aren't more fans showing up and it's an amazing article which 
actually talks specifically about the extra work players are having to do to come up with a secondary income or or work on building a career that they'll move into after they retire from the WNBA because they don't have enough money for that to be their their only career ever. And it talks about one player's decision to take improv classes after practice, which is just a choice so well suited to the content of this podcast I had to include. Anyway, I read the comments on this article and I found uh, they were truly heartbreaking. I found a lot of what I actually just already heard from sports fans I've I've talked to in person because it's a lot of guys being like I won't watch women's basketball and you can't make me which you know like I I'm like sorry dude I am going to make you do that like too bad for you but really it's it's like they're saying I don't watch women's sports and I and I won't because it's they're not as good as men's sports some of these comments are like Jordan from Melbourne Florida he says Women players are not and never will be the physical equivalent of men on the court. And Michael Stavson from Brooklyn says, any WNBA team that would play against an NBA team would be demolished because the women's team are not capable of playing anywhere close to the level the men play on. These kinds of comparisons are are throughout all of the comments. And this may seem like the rumblings of internet trolls and not something to be cited in an argument, but actually in 2015, The Atlantic published this article called Women's Soccer is a Feminist Issue, which uh, came out preceding the World Cup that summer. And it questions why the women's game hasn't gotten more attention or been perceived as good. And a few days later, they actually released a follow-up article addressing the onslaught of comments they'd received in which people are arguing over the value of the women's game in this shadow of the obviously superior men. Also, I follow Caitlin Murray, who's a Yahoo sports writer on Twitter, and every time she publishes an article about a woman's game, she tweets the same thing, saying, expect the usual in the comments section. And maybe these commentators are to be ignored, but I'm taking them as real voices because actually um, people don't watch the women's games nearly as much as they watch the men's. And of course that is because the media doesn't cover them, the TV channels don't play them, their own leagues and federations aren't supporting them, they aren't investing in them. But what the comments show us is why people don't want to watch it. Not why they don't, which there are so many reasons why people actually don't, but why, even given the option, they would choose not to. And I think what the comments show is that sports fans just don't think that women's sports are very good. And since I'm kind of new to sports, I'm wondering, are they right? Are women athletes not that good? This kind of question about what's good and and how do I find out what's good, um, I began thinking about like how we assess value in entertainment. Because um, of course, on one hand, it's subjective. It's like, I'm enjoying it, so it's good. But there's also some criteria about like what makes a game good, which I have no fucking clue what it is because like I've never talked to anyone about sports prior to fucking July. But um, I I have had this experience a lot with theater because like a few weeks ago, I went and I saw a play with my friend from high school who who has nothing to do with theater, has never done it, and like has has no hopes to ever participate. Um, and after the show, she was asking me, did I think the play was good? Like kind of like 
you know, assuming I know something about theater and so what's my opinion on it? And this just gets me started on like, well, what does good mean? I mean, like the performance was uh, completely strange, but like the ideas were really interesting. So there's maybe one answer for the performance style and one for the script and one for the vision of the play. And and how am I even deciding if those parts are good? Where is good coming from? Specifically in regards to, uh, to me, someone who has so many reference points, because I think in theater, either a play is good because it reminds us of other good plays we've seen. So we're like, I know for sure this is good because it did all the same things that another play that everyone said was good did so i can say for sure it's good but then there's also another kind of good where it's like it did none of the same trendy things uh but we all liked it anyway um and that kind of also like rests on having all this knowledge about um what has been good in the past like people who are less familiar with it tend to not be the people we ask for opinions like people ask me about theater they don't ask me about uh, sports famously as no one's asked me to make this podcast and yet I'm doing it anyway but like the people I'm asking about sports are are people who I deem like to be familiar with and so I I trust them to know what's good in this arena but when something is unfamiliar it's hard to say if it's good you can say you like it but you know where does it stand you don't know because you don't know anything about the field like, if I had to evaluate a piece of classical music, I would say, you know, this piece seems good by the standard of the, like, you know, maybe it sounds sweeping. And that's a word I've heard other people use in reference to symphonies. Uh, or maybe the music sounds emotional, which sounds important. And, you know, if you ask me what's bad, I would be like, if it's boring, if it's unoriginal, if it just sounds bad. But I thought maybe I'll ask my friend Declan, who went to music school for percussion, has spent so much of their life in bands and orchestras, you know, what would they say to the question, what makes a good symphony? And so I, I had them record their answer. Asking me what makes a good symphony is like asking me what makes a good carbonara. The answer is a lot of things and also not very much at all. It's very complicated and also very simple. The word symphony refers to any extended Western classical music composition, usually written for orchestra, but not always. The term as we use it today pretty much arose in the 18th century. At first it was used to describe any sort of piece for a large ensemble of musicians. As orchestras sort of developed a little bit more um, and composition developed more, it started referring to large works that had three movements. People like Haydn, Mozart, Bach wrote a lot of three movement symphonies, but it sort of evolved in four movements became the norm. Some of my favorite symphonies are Beethoven's third, um, Tchaikovsky's sixth, uh, Rachmaninoff's second. There are so many symphonies out there, and all of them are very different and very beautiful, but there's actually a, root, a kind of a form to it. Um, and especially in the 18th century, um, the form was pretty much adhered to, um, which is that the first movement is an upbeat in sonata, uh, upbeat uh, allegro or something else like that um, in sonata form. The second movement is slower, usually a lento or an adagio. The third movement is in three, so a minuet or a scherzo. And the fourth movement is back to sonata form, an allegro or a rondo. All of those were the options, but but especially like Beethoven pretty much stuck to that form. Well, there's some exceptions, but the form is the form. If I'm speaking from purely personal aesthetic tastes, I think symphonies that don't necessarily adhere to the four-part, four-movement form, but 
are certainly referencing it or in conversation with it are really, really compelling to me. I think symphonies that respect the beauty and and capability of a large ensemble. I, last year, I saw this piece um, that wasn't a symphony, but it, it was a very big orchestral piece. The composer had managed to like isolate sounds in this way where like this sort of sound of air being blown or, or air like passing, like moved from one section to another. So it, so it like in front of you, you could actually like, hear it moving across the stage. And it was so beautiful. And that's not exactly that kind of like textural sound thing is not something that happens in the type of symphonies we're talking about. But that sort of respect to the space and to the fact that a, a symphony or the fact that an orchestra is a, in my opinion, a, a literally a, a, a living, breathing animal that that is alive for as long as it's playing. Anything that reminds me of that or touches that in me, I love. You know, clearly from this, you can tell that Declan has given this subject just a tad more thought than me. And so they've got a standard about what is good and what is bad and why, and even what's different from the normal good and and is still good anyway. Like they're able to determine value in the music because they have a, a level of familiarity with it. They have a relationship to it, which makes me think with entertainment, the way we would determine value is based in our relationship to the thing. It's not based in objective measurements. We like what we know more than we like what we can sense the most technical perfection in. So if value is relative, as in determined by your relationship to the thing, it makes me wonder why so many men hate women's sports um, because they're arguing why they don't watch the game. They're saying like, this is why I will not watch the game because it's bad. Um, like they don't have a familiarity with the game. Their relationship to it is distant and yet they feel confident in uh, judging the value of it to be bad. I don't think this is a purely uh, misogyny. Well, no, I, I think this is purely misogyny, but like, I think that this uh, makes sense because they are applying a value judgment they have um, with men's sports that comes from a deep, loving familiarity with men's sports. Um, they're applying that standard to women's sports and saying, by the standard of men's sports, women's sports are bad. And this would make sense if men and women's sports were the exact same thing. If they were just the same game played by different people, then the judgment on one could apply to the other. And I just don't think they are the same game. I think they don't really play by the same rules. And I I don't think necessarily, I mean, in some cases they actually play with different rules. Like the uh, when the Women's World Cup started, like they were forced to play shorter games with a different sized field and, a, you know, different size goal and so there's some degree of actual difference in rules but I I think that it's not so much the rules of the game that I mean but the rules of the sports industries that govern the way the game is played and when I say sports industries I mean how money affects the game in the men's game the maximum salaries for players are millions of dollars higher than the minimum salary, which means that on the same team, there can be one guy making like millions of dollars and another guy making much, much less than that, making something in the hundreds of thousands of dollars. But in the women's game, the stretch of uh, the difference between minimum and maximum salaries is separated by tens of thousands of dollars, not more. It's like, uh, I mean, I talked about this in the last episode, but in the NWSL, 
the minimum salary is $16,000 and the maximum is what, like $46,000. So there's a very small difference between the value that's put on one player from another. In the men's game, so different. An individual player can grow so far because they can start making so much money. They can become so famous and that can distinguish them from their teammates. For example, looking only at the people who reach the top heights in these sports, like Messi, his net worth is $400 million, whereas Megan Rapinoe's net worth is $3 million. And in basketball, LeBron James has a net worth of $450 million, but Diana Taurasi from the WNBA has a net worth of $1.5 million. Uh, most of that income probably coming from her years playing in Russia because you can't make any money in the U.S., as a women's basketball player like obviously the way these players are paid is different but i think that it affects the game because as you can see from the comments i read earlier there's this evaluation process that is fixated on what the body can do and i think that reveals how a lot of value in the men's game comes from what the singular body can do um and that one body that can do way more physically is more exciting to watch than another. Um, and I, I personally wonder like why this obsession with the body if you just only cared about what the pure like strength of the body uh, was, why not watch swimming or like something that is uh, or like the CrossFit games, like something that is about that kind of strength. But actually, those uh, being interested in that is not so disharmonious with men's team sports because I think they're built to allow the ascension of individual players to reach fame and fortune. And to get there, these players need to be distinguished by their solo stats and, and individual successes, like in how fast they are, how accurate they are, how far they can get the ball. These things distinguish them from the other people on their team and make them eligible to enter the upper echelon of players who can uh, make a ton of money and receive endorsement deals and be kind of a draw for people to come to the stadiums just to see them. So I think that in the men's game, in the world of men's sports, the degree of what's possible for men is so much higher, so much grander than the degree of what's possible for a woman's player. And in the men's game, receiving individual attention is in your best interest financially. So you do things to obtain it. But the women's game works totally differently. Like they have so much less to gain from being impressive on their own, on the court or field. And with less of a growth opportunity for individual players, the gameplay becomes more strategic. Watching, I, I recently watched some men's sports for the first time and I was just really shocked by how much they kicked the ball like they were uh, every single time the ball was obtained the person would like kind of kick it as hard as they could and that show of strength was so consistent in every play and I'm not used to that like in the women's game people make a ton of small subtle indirect passes that on their own like don't seem to be doing that much but build towards more complicated plays and I've I've heard this, uh, I've heard people describe this phenomenon as like, because women players can't do what the men do physically, they devise other ways of playing that are more about strategy. I kind of think something sort of similar, because there's no incentive to play the way the men do, women devise other ways of playing. Because I don't think it's just like men naturally play this way and women naturally play this 
other way we exist in the realities of the industries and so i think from what i've seen people play based on what is gonna be seen as good and good playing in the men's game is strong playing whereas good playing in the women's game is kind of like creative playing or again strategic playing the great men players obviously have to be creative and the great women players have to be strong but i'm talking about what guides the play moment to moment what all this information means to me is that like the women when people say the women's game isn't good uh but they don't really watch it they really watch men's sports i think that what they're saying is women's sports don't look like men's sports and i think men's sports are good and so i don't really understand why this other different thing is is worth watching yeah i just think they're different and they have a different bar and dare i say to connect it to the worlds of arts entertainment it's like theater and movies are completely different except that they're sort of the same thing like they both have this like two hour long story that you sit down and watch except so much is different about their industries and so much is different about the form that like to compare one uh uh you know i'm i'm shaking i have no idea how to but i want to draw some sort of connection there if i can about how we're really used to in entertainment um latching onto the idea of good and that allowing us to kind of create boundaries around what should be the best forms of entertainment and what's not as valuable and i think that women's sports are so good <laughs> i think they're so great and i think that we culturally are so familiar with men's sports we have so many more reference points for them that it's hard for us to see something that's different like fundamentally played with different intentions and still see the good in it and actually i was hoping learning all of this would like really give me a foolproof way to convince people how great women's sports are and i've watched some men's sports now and i you know i don't really think they're <laughs> i don't think they're that um great or interesting or fun but i'm not really sure that it is the the style of gameplay in women's games that actually draws me to them because when i think about the first game that I watched it wasn't anything to do with the game that made me so invested it was because I sat there feeling like I had never seen women push themselves and succeed or fail and celebrate or cry and uh and watch them work together and be so relentless and be supported in that I'd never seen anything like that to that degree and if another way to establish value in something is scarcity I think women's sports have value if only because they present a kind of show that doesn't exist anywhere else like for the amount of theater and movies and like whatever you know that i've seen that has represented people in life i have felt i felt like i had never seen representation this full um, which was on one hand extremely sad and on another hand exciting because i felt like there's here's this world that i've been ignoring that actually shows women in this way that I love to see them be. And and that kind of set up my relationship to it um, and what has allowed me to see value in it. And honestly, it's why I think you should see value in it and I think you should watch it. Yeah, it's like, just think of women's sports as an improv dance show about the strength of the human spirit. And I mean, if that's not gonna get you, I don't know what will. Okay, that's all from me today. I'm gonna talk to you guys soon. I have some exciting news, I think, coming up about what my new plans are for this podcast. Um, 
So that is the tantalizing little hint I will leave you on as we approach episode five. <laughs>